I want. I, I have. Uh, I have something I need to start off with before we okay. get going. I have an ongoing family emergency. I don't. I don't usually get very personal on the show, but I. I feel like I can. I gotta share this one with you guys. So my son has some birthday money left over, or Christmas money. He has found money that he uh, gets to spend <laughs> at Target. And so at my, Target, did at, you say? At Target, yes. And so my wife took him to Target, and she sent me a text message just before we came on the show to say he wants to buy Monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to break up the family? Why does he want to yeah, break up your family? Fa- your family is ruined. Sorry. Family over. I, I, I guess I have to go get a new one. I don't know. I mean, he wants yeah. to buy Monopoly, and I was like, I can see why. I can see why you'd want to buy Monopoly. You see it everywhere. And I was like, what about like Payday? Like that's a game with fake money. And I remember it being like more fun. And my wife was like, well, Payday is more expensive than Monopoly. He doesn't have enough money. And I was like, I am willing to overlook this transgression. I feel like, like someone needs to just come up with an alternate set of rules for Monopoly, like the machete order for uh, Star Wars. Like just cut out some of the bits that got weird and then make it all play nice together. And then it'd be yeah. fine. I think Didn't I'm gonna... Gordon say the machete order just doesn't actually work if you've never watched Star Wars before. I mean, Gordon says a lot of things. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I don't know. I don't know what's happening right now. You know, I'll probably get news on this family emergency as the show develops. Please do keep up. us updated. Yeah, I'll let you know if uh, I'm going to be playing Monopoly tonight with my seven-year-old. I too have a have a thing I'd like to to open with. Okay. Uh, so after the last episode, several listeners reached out to me to try and help test and I acquire a Nintendo Switch. Oh we wow! We did manage to successfully acquire a Nintendo Switch, so thank you for that. Do you have that fancy Zelda game? We do. Yes, I tried licking it. I don't recommend licking it. <laughs> um, Is this a thing that I don't know about? They have they have special coating on all of their cartridges so that like kids don't eat them. It tastes really bad. How big is the cartridge at this point? Um, it's about the size of a DS cartridge. Okay. Did they do this with the DS cartridges? No. No. Yeah. I know it's because my niece, when she was like three, she's 11 now. I give a shit about this. But <laughs> I came to visit, got a hold of like my DS case and like stuck them all in, in her mouth and a bunch of the contacts got corroded. <laughs> But she didn't choke on it, so, you know, that's She didn't good. choke on it, but she did destroy them. Hmm. So, you know, baby was fine, video games were not fine. Like, I'm not sure which of those you weigh more heavily. <laughs> Various person to person, I'm sure. Yeah. It's funny, because the, the Zelda game, it's like open world, so you can, go, you can go fight Ganon as soon as you finish the tutorial area. And there's a character who's like, going to fight Ganon right now would be a foolish endeavor. And so the Dark Souls player in me wants to just say, I'm going to do what I want and just go bang my head against Ganon until I win with three hearts. Mm -hmm. And then the Skyrim player in me wants to never pay attention to the main quest ever again and just go randomly explore the world and -hmm. never finish the game. Let us know how that turns out. (laughs) I will. Let's go to people tomorrow. Wait, hang on. We have to introduce Chris. Oh, right. Chris is here. Hi there. This is Chris Toomey. I am Chris Toomey. He works at ThoughtBot. I do. Yeah. We'll talk about some things, but what's tomorrow? <laughs> SES-10. First reused rocket to ever fly. 
Oh, they're going to... So I told you to brush up on Rockets. Right. Well, you said... Did, was it Rockets, Space, and something else? Was I the said Rockets, of... Space, and Zelda. I said brush up oh. on Rockets, Space, and Zelda. Ah, that's why Zelda was on the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is this uh, so far, a Zelda podcast? I don't know if you know this. <laughs> so this is... This is uh, SpaceX is going to relaunch the rocket that they landed. Right. So it last launched with CRS-9. So the first the first boost they landed was CRS eight. CRS are the crew and resupply, commercial resupply services or crew and resupply services missions for NASA to the space station. CRS eight was the first time they landed a booster. That one's out in front of their Hawthorne office, and then CRS nine is the booster that's flying tomorrow. Hmm. And I hope they land it. It'll be spectacular if they land it. I seriously doubt they're going to land it because it's a five point three ton payload into geostationary transfer orbit, which is on the absolute upper limit of what they could feasibly land. They've never landed a payload this heavy successfully before. And the last launch was Echo Star 23, which was a 5.5 ton payload. And they didn't even try. They launched that with an expendable rocket. So 200 kilogram difference. So that just means it's that much harder to get it up into space and it's going to burn that much harder to do it. Is that why that's more difficult? It means that the booster has to burn that much more fuel because the booster is expected to reach a certain altitude and a certain velocity, and it has to expend more fuel to get a heavier payload to that same altitude and same velocity, which means there's less fuel available for landing. And so in this particular case, yeah, it means that then they have to skip one of the three burns that they do. So they have to burn uh, three engines for the landing burn instead of one burn, which the type of burn they do at the very end is called a suicide burn. (laughs) Sure. Uh, which is literally where you ignite the engines at the exact moment so that you hit zero meters per second at the instant you would touch the ground and you don't you don't do any sort of hovering. Uh, it's also called a hover slam. And so the faster you're going, the more precise the timing and calculations have to be or you make a giant hole in the middle of your fancy ocean barge. But regardless of whether or not they land it, it's going to be a pretty a pretty big deal just having a reused rocket fly. Yeah, that sounds exciting. I'm with you. Yeah, that sounds exciting. <laughs> is, that, is that what I sound like? All right, Chris. <clears throat> what have you been working Chris, on lately? What have I been working on? You want to plug out here? I, I do, yeah. I, uh, I made a thing. It was based on an idea that Derek had uh, years ago. Uh, I think it's years ago at this point. And in the uh, ancient tradition of Derek having an idea, saying it near me, and then me implementing it, uh, we built a service. <laughs> so the thing is called Tell Me When It Closes. You can find it at tellmewhenitcloses.com. And its job is to subscribe to GitHub pull requests and issues on your behalf. uh, And then it will send you an email when those close. So the reason that you might want this is, say you have a Vim plugin that has some bug in it. You go to the repo, you see that there is a a conversation, an issue that's happening, uh, but you have no idea what's going on. You don't write Vim plugins, so you don't want to actually follow the whole conversation. You just want to know when that's done so that you can update your local copy of the plugin. So that's the whole point of this thing. It uh, quiets down some of the noise and just allows you to uh, inform yourself in the future when these things have closed. Does it work for pull requests too? Yep. Pull requests and issues equally. Does it tell you whether the pull request was merged or rejected when it closed? It does. And we even have fancy colors to indicate all of those various states. Where have you been all my life? (laughs) (laughs) Been building this. You have to sit near Chris and tell him about things that bother you in your workflow. I've wanted this for years. <laughs> the thing that I found like really exactly this. <laughs> I've found it really interesting in that uh, I've described this problem to a number of people, and a bunch of people just respond with like, "Huh," and sort of their thinking is, eh, "I don't know. That's never really been a problem for me." And then a week later, 
this has happened for many, many individuals that I've talked to about this. They've just come back like, oh man, I totally found an issue and I totally wanted the thing now. It has this really interesting profile where initially it doesn't quite make sense. And then when you're aware of the, the concept, the idea that you might want this, it suddenly becomes very clear that this is a thing that you want. So we built it now. To loop my GitHub notifications. Yeah. No, especially like Rails or larger projects like that. There can be actually hundreds of messages before the thing actually closes. And I don't want a single one of them. Uh, I used to actually go through the process of subscribing to a number of them because I did want to know. So this was the only option that I had. And that was a lot of emails to delete. But, uh, <laughs> or more, a lot of emails and each one possibly meant that something good had happened. Uh, but often just meant some noise along the way. When you're doing that, like I remember, I think where this came out of was, I forget exactly what the project was, but it was like we were adding either a workaround to our project or using a branch of a, some fork somewhere in a project. Yep. And there was an open issue that had already had a bunch of discussion and it was like, okay, I'm gonna subscribe to this issue. But then like every time you get an email, you briefly get excited and you're like, maybe this is it. Maybe they fixed it. And then it's not fixed and it's just somebody else saying plus one. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, the plus ones. <laughs> I have a policy now where if I have if I have an issue open and it gets 10 plus one comments with no other constructive comments in between, I just lock it. And then I say, if you have something constructive to add, email me. <laughs> I delete the plus ones. And I, I actually think the GitHub thing, the thing that they... The voting, the, the little the voting... The emoji reaction <laughs> thing. Yeah, that helped. That reduced yeah. the number of them. Uh, that's actually super useful because I think the plus one is a valuable signal. But it's terrible when everyone that's subscribed to that issue gets an email for it and when there are actually hundreds in some cases. And just it's it's given equal importance in notifications and in the actual display of the thread to people who are actually trying to solve the problem or providing more information, yep. et cetera. Yeah. Um, so those are really, they, they've been on GitHub. Good on you. GitHub does great work. <laughs> I don't know. It does. It does lead to because I actually don't necessarily think they're that useful. Like projects don't generally address issues based on the number of plus one comments they get. And it does sort of often lead to especially on projects when you're dealing with a discussion on a project for which you aren't a primary maintainer, having people voting, you know, voting publicly plus one or or minus one on every comment you leave can can certainly lead to um, a feeling of being ganged up on. Yeah, that's true. There's definitely some of that. There's also the idea of design by committee versus like the Rails core team in some cases. They're going to want to make a decision for reasons that are not necessarily in line with the plus ones or the minus ones. Uh, but I will say I, I maintain a small number of mostly Vim plugins and things, but they're you know little open source projects. And I have had the experience where I've closed an issue saying like, I don't think this is a thing that we want to support. I don't think this is right. functionality that we want. But then other issues have been reopened with the same topic, and then plus ones came along, and I was finally convinced of, this is that, like, for the people who use this thing, they actually want this functionality, even though I don't necessarily want it. And that was a signal to me that I should actually incorporate that functionality, so I ended up doing that. But I can imagine that on a larger scale being more noise than anything else, so. Right. Got to avoid the noise. So you do Vim stuff? <laughs> I dabble. <laughs> That's the other thing I got. So I have a long history, Chris alluded to, of I don't remember what the first instance of it was, but like Chris and I were working on something and I'd be like, I was like, it would be really cool if this existed. And I had no meaning behind it. Uh, I mean, you meant that it would be really cool sure if it existed. I meant that it would be really cool if it existed. And then like two Fridays later, Chris was like, hey, pull down this branch, try this thing. And I was like, oh, it exists now. That's great. And that just kind of planted the seed of like, okay, if I have, <laughs> particularly if I have something like workflowy related. 
I know that Chris is my person that I can bug about it. That it's is like, my sweet spot. I wish this tool existed, like tell me when it closes or <laughs> something like that. Or our factory was a, it's a Vim factory girl plugin kind of thing. And I was like, why can't, when I'm in a test, why can't I just hit a shortcut that like, and I'm in a, on a line that says like create admin. Why can't I just hit a shortcut and have it show me what the definition of the admin factory is? And then that's the thing that like two weeks later, Chris was like, try this. I was like, oh yes. It's a close cousin to nerd sniping. So nerd nerd sniping, if you're not familiar, is like this idea where you say like, you set up a challenge that you want accomplished by saying like, it can't be done or it's really difficult or something like that. And then you wait for the nerds who are really excited by like the super hard challenges or just to prove people wrong to come and pick that up. And that's that it's close to, but not quite the same thing that I do to Chris. Yeah, the idea of nerd <laughs> sniping coming from a particular XKCD, which we can probably link to somewhere in the show notes. But yeah, you don't even have to go full on nerd snipe where you pretend like a thing is impossible. You just merely- <laughs> I just wish a thing exists. Nice. <laughs> uh, just on the subject of wishing a thing exists and then having it happen before, I, just because I want to mention this at some point and I'm going to forget otherwise. Mike and Matt, thanks for the pull request. <laughs> what did they do? They opened a pull request to add uh, with defaults. Oh, rails. that's right. Yeah, so that we talked about that on the show. I don't know if Chris is caught up, but we talked about that on the uh, on a couple shows in a row. That like when you use reverse merge on hash, what you really are trying to do almost every single time is say like I want this hash, but with these defaults. Mm-hmm. And so we said like somebody should alias that to with defaults, and then some people actually went and opened up a pull request. Oh, that seems nice. Yeah, and then Raphael immediately closed it. Immediately, <laughs> and then I pinged him, and I was like, "No, I actually asked for that." He's like, "Oh, okay, you should reopen it then." <laughs> <laughs> See the plus ones. The plus ones win in that case. They matter, mm, kind of. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Sean's plus one counts more Sean than other plus ones. Sean knew somebody yeah. and uh, reached out. Uh... <laughs> um, yeah. So there's some cool stuff with "Tell Me When It Closes." If we want to get back to that for a second. So how much do I have to pay for it? You have to pay none dollars. So it's actually free. It is actually free. It's a it's a relatively lightweight and simple service. Basically, all it does is it stores that information. Uh, we OAuth with GitHub, so that's the way we know who you are and who your email address is. But that's all the information we take. And eventually, I got to put up a privacy policy or something like that to guarantee that I will not do anything nefarious with that information. But uh, we hold on to your email, and then we hold on to the discussions that you want to watch. And then on a schedule, we'll ping GitHub, hit their API, and pull in that information and as necessary email if any discussion has transitioned to closed or merged. Uh, so it's not terribly complicated and thankfully we have ThoughtBot as our, our nice benefactor. So uh, it's just another Heroku app that we have running in production now and it works out nicely. But uh, actually the origins of it are sort of interesting. So Derek and I have been talking about this problem for a while. I think it was a full two years ago that we were on the project where Derek first planted this idea in my head and we first had that need for it. But since then, it's just been in the back of my head for a while. And uh, one other thing that was happening at ThoughtBot about, I'd say it was six months ago, there were a lot of people very interested in Haskell, reading the Haskell book, going through uh, different little exercises. And I had gotten sufficiently far in my investigation that I decided it was time to let's try something a little bit more significant. And uh, Tell Me When It Closes came back into my mind as sort of a perfectly shaped and scoped project. It was small enough that I understood all the moving parts. It was very clear to me how to implement that in a language that I knew. So that would be a, a good thing to try out. In, so it's written in Haskell then? It is not written in Haskell <laughs> is the thing. Uh, so the way it all happened is we started myself and Matt Sumner. Uh, so Matt Sumner and Paul Smith are the two other ThoughtBotters that helped out. Actually, we all worked on it together uh, over the Christmas break. 
but Matt Sumner and I were working on it over the course of a few Fridays in Haskell. And overall, that was a great experience and really did push our Haskell knowledge a good bit f uh, further along. Uh, but then we came to the Ralph Palooza over uh, the Christmas two days that we take off here at ThoughtBot to hang out and be a team and all that kind of stuff. And so we were trying to work on it and continue it in Haskell. And I think we got to 2 p.m. on the first workday. And we just realized we were never going to cross the finish line. And a big goal of Ralph Palooza is actually to ship the thing. So we stopped. We had a quick conversation and said, is it more valuable to continue with the Haskell implementation or is it more valuable to have a working solution? And we decided the working solution was the thing that we wanted. So we uh, set aside the Haskell implementation, restarted it in Rails, and had it done in less than 24 hours. Uh, Rails is a nifty little framework. And granted, that speaks. I want to be very clear, since we're in a sort of public space here, uh, that's not an indictment of Haskell. That's 100% related to our knowledge and comfort with Rails versus sure. our right. skill set with Haskell. But I will say... Working in Haskell was really interesting. There were some things that were a little bit frustrating. There was a lot of newness that was difficult, mm -hmm. but there was a particular point where we decided to do a pretty significant refactoring. And we just sort of picked a random place in the app and went in with a hatchet. We just started tearing stuff apart and just followed the compiler. And it would say, yeah. oh, now you have an error over here. This should be that. And we would go and fix that. And then we did the next one, and we did the next one. And then after a few minutes of doing that and being very much directed in what we were doing, we weren't thinking about what we had to fix. We just kept doing what it told us to. We got to the end of that, and suddenly it compiled. And we were like, no. And then we went to the browser, and we reloaded, and it worked. And we were like, no. <laughs> and that was sort of a, a transformative experience for me. Now I'm, I'm, I want that again. I want to find a way to get there in other languages probably but maybe haskell maybe i can figure out haskell but i do think that's like the magic experience that you have to show somebody for them to get the value of strong static typing when they've been doing dynamic typing for quite some time doing rails or something like that because you know i, I we've had conversations on the show before i understand everything but i'm like yeah you know rails is just comfortable or whatever but if you get like so like i had a similar experience working with ian on purple train elm app and like he was like, help me work on this new feature we're going to add. And like it became pretty quick. Like I'm, I'm just kind of like pointing things out from the back because I don't really know Elm. So I'm just like, I think this needs to do that. This, this function now needs to take this other type. And it was like, okay, well, where do we start this refactor? It was like, how about in the function that we're looking at right now? <laughs> we'll just start doing it. And then yeah. it was like, change this, change that, and you're like exactly what you said. Like change this, change that, and you're done. And you yeah. can't get that experience when you're starting on a new app. Like it's not until you get Yep. something fairly sizable that's going to be a pain to refactor that you're like, whoa, that was that is that is significantly easier. I don't even know that you have to that you have to show that to people to sell it to them. I think the big issue is that even with that big sell, you need the language to not have a significant enough productivity hit to really feel hindered by it getting started. Like I think Rust can maybe get there and that's why I'm trying to push it cuz I think you could, you know, you're never going to see Rust out of the gate be as productive as Ruby is. You're just not going to be able to ever quite match that write whatever the hell you want and it's going to run. It <laughs> might crash at some point, but it'll run. It will almost certainly crash at some point. Let's be clear. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, but I think if you can get that initial productivity hit down to let's say 15% I feel like it's sort of the magic number where, because I think I do think people, even if they haven't had that, like, oh, and I can just refactor something fearlessly, even if they haven't had that experience, I do think people intuitively understand that you're paying forward a cost in initial productivity for maintainability of the code that you write later on. 
I think they understand that's the idea, but until they right. see it. There was a sort of a visceral feeling of that experience where like I knew of this and I remember reading particularly an anecdote where it was two people having a conversation about Haskell and saying like, you know, everybody says, oh, I, I can't use Haskell. I'm not smart enough. But we, the two people that were having the conversation were saying, I use Haskell because I'm dumb because I can offload a lot of the cognitive stuff. I don't have to think about everything. I don't have to keep the entirety of a system in my head. I can look at individual pieces and actually trust that that will work. I don't have to be right. the best object-oriented designer in the world and do everything perfectly and even then still have errors in my app. I can trust that there's this other thing that's keeping an eye on the code and helping me. Even after reading that, I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. But there was something to having that experience and being like, oh, oh, wow, that, that was a thing right there. And then knowing further Every app that I work on now, and there's a undefined method on nil, or undefined is not a function, every time that happens is all the more painful now, because I know that it is possible to remove a large class of that sort of error. And knowing that is like, oh, why am I doing this to myself? But that said, though, the app's written in Rails. <laughs> sure is. And it's doing great. It's humming along. And like... I do remember like joking around with you and Matt when you guys were working on it. Like I think this was before the Ralph Palooza hackathon thing we do. It was just like your random Fridays working on it. And I remember being like listening to the conversations you have and then like I would wait and then we'd go have lunch and we'd come back and I'd hear you guys having a conversation and I'd be like, uh, did you guys manage to make a network request yet? <laughs> no, no, we haven't. <laughs> so I, I will say this for Haskell because I do agree with you that like you don't have to be the smartest person in the world to write Haskell contrary to the, the the belief that like you have to have a PhD to understand it. But it did always frustrate me that library authors thought I had a PhD. There is a... I want to be careful about what I say here because <laughs> I, I don't want to cast wide nets and things, but when I look at some of the communities that I am part of, Ruby and Elm is an example of one that has been just extremely friendly, welcoming to beginners, and focused on those sort of... that, that new user productivity, all of those sort of elements... Haskell doesn't necessarily have that as a community, and there's some I mean, efforts I wasn't to even fix that. On that. I'm just talking about documentation. Well, I think that all it all comes together: documentation, library availability, tutorials, quick start guides. There are right. so many things that make up the ecosystem of a language, and Haskell's was a little bit uh, rougher. It was a little bit more bare bones. And granted, I can imagine that future where the types tell the story. And that, that's what I've heard in general about documentation is with Haskell, you don't need types or you don't need documentation because you have types and you can look at the right, types. But that's, that's, that. that's bullshit. I have never found that to be true. I don't know when that happens to a Haskell programmer that that magic switch happens in their brain, but it was a complicated thing getting into the Haskell world. Yeah. I don't think that switch ever happens. I get the point that they're making that the types do tell a story. Maybe there are certain functions where just you can look at the type signature and, and understand, okay, that's what that function does. Mm -hmm. That's true for some functions. It's not going to be true. That's certainly not going to be true for generic functions. Yep. Like sequence is not a function, uh, which which just inverts like you have, let's say, a list of, of maybe T and you want a maybe list of T, right? Sequence is the generic version of that, but it works for any two applicatives. Mm -hmm. That's never a function that the type signature is going to really properly tell the story. But then when you when you go up one scope and you're looking at, a module or a library, it doesn't matter how good your type signatures are. I want I want documentation to tell me how am I actually supposed to use this thing. Yep. How do I call these six functions to properly make a network request? 
Yeah. And I think each community has their their things that they stand out for. Like I know the Python community is really big on documentation. It is just yeah. a core part of their ethos and they do an amazing job with it. And the Ruby community is really big on tests. They kind of have to be, but they also are. Uh, and that's a good thing. And, you know, it, it varies between them. But yeah, that, that certainly was my experience. Um, but that's Shout out know. to, uh, to Yasod and Opali, though, in the Haskell community. Yes. For both yep. being libraries that are well documented. Opali, in particular, I look at a lot just because ORMs. And similarly, uh, Stack as the sort of bring it all together package manager slash builder slash everything else. Uh, right. I have tried, I've dabbled in Haskell stuff uh, like a year and a half ago, and it was much, much rougher. And then I tried it with Stack vastly more straightforward. So there's definitely some movement in that direction and people purposefully trying to make the beginner experience a little bit better. The Haskell book is the book that we read most recently and that was intended for absolute newbies and trying to give a more holistic, what is this whole Haskell thing? Let's take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. SparkPost is the robust cloud API for apps and websites to send and receive email. Built on AWS, it's the world's most reliable and fastest growing cloud email service provider with offerings that range from free, self-service startup accounts to sophisticated enterprise support and services. With developer-friendly, enterprise-grade features using SMTP or combined with your language of choice, SparkPost's email REST API makes it easy to embed transactional email and analytics into any app or workflow. SparkPost's high-performance email infrastructure is the only cloud auto-scaling platform with burst rates backed by comprehensive uptime SLAs and is trusted by the world's biggest senders to deliver unmatched uptime and resilience. From its amazing REST API to industry-leading deliverability to deep analytics, there's never been a better way to build and send email. Try SparkPost and send 100,000 emails a month for free at pages.sparkpost.com slash bikeshed. Thanks again to SparkPost for sponsoring today's show. The other thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about while we had you here, GraphQL. Yeah, GraphQL. Yeah, so you're using the GitHub GraphQL API? Is that, or you started using the REST API and then no. switched to the well, GraphQL? Well, yes, we, our goal was to use the GitHub REST. So it was funny. In my mind, there's this app that I wanted to build, tell me when it closes. And like I said, the whole point of building this thing was to learn Haskell because it was a very simple implementation. I knew exactly what this implementation looked like. And in fact, GitHub has a notifications API endpoint that you can hit to sort of maintain a cursor and they'll tell you for anything that you're watching and we would have a user that would be watching so our tell me when it closes GitHub user would subscribe to all these threads and then we can basically ask GitHub, hey, what's happened since the last time we talked? And it would just give us this nice list of everything. Unfortunately, due to complexities slash deficiencies in the GitHub REST API, it was impossible to get the ID that I needed in order to be able to do the subscription and a whole bunch of things. The REST API was a non-starter, which was a very surprising thing. We got deep into the world of building the Haskell version of the application and suddenly we hit that wall. And I was just, I was very, very sad that day <laughs> uh, because it was four <laughs> weeks of trying other stuff in Haskell and getting it to deploy to Heroku. And then I figured we were getting to the easy part of now, okay, I can do almost everything. Now let's just connect that lap. Wait, really? That's not going to work? Are you serious? <laughs> uh, so that was, that was unfortunate. But in the ensuing week, I did a little bit of research because I knew there had to be a way to make this work. And it turns out GitHub recently introduced a GraphQL API. So a entirely distinct API from their REST API, but serving the same content. So for anyone unfamiliar, GraphQL is a going to call it a framework or an architecture uh, proposed by Facebook. And the idea is rather than having REST, these resources that you interact with using HTTP verbs, 
you instead have a singular endpoint that you hit and you're able to compose sort of not entirely ad hoc queries, but much more freeform queries. So in the example of Facebook, you can say, give me my list of friends. For each friend, give me every event that they're subscribed to. For each of those events, show me each person that is also going to that event. And for those people, give me the smallest version of their profile picture. And there's a nice declarative syntax for defining that query. And additionally nice is the structure that you define when you make the query is the structure of the JSON that comes back. So there's a symmetry to that that makes it very easy to work with the data to get exactly the data that you need. So would you say that it's a language for querying structured data? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost a structured query language? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say exactly that, but... Um, the, the I was just gonna say like the, just to go back to your example for a second, that example you gave where you were like show me all my friends and the events they're subscribed to and who's attending those events and mm -hmm. give me their profile picture or something like that. It was some I forget exactly what it was, but it was something like that. And if to if you were going to look at that restfully, then you would have to make all sorts of decisions. The first thing you'd have to decide is like, does it make sense to send back all of the attendees to an event, or should that be a separate request? That, is that a different resource, right? I mean, JSON API that, though also like not to say oh REST solves this because X or Y or Z, but like REST doesn't always ha have to be you hit this endpoint and you get exactly this all the time. For example, JSON API specifies that you can uh, do add includes to the query parameter right. and then specify which additional associations you'd like to have embedded. Sure. There are definitely ways to make anything work with sort of anything else. Right. Uh, Facebook is obviously a special case, but there, the anecdotes that they have around introducing GraphQL is they have a thousand different clients right. that all need to interact with the same API. So the idea of having each of those thousand clients have different data needs. Well, this one shows a dashboard that includes these pieces. This one shows a dashboard that has an entirely different set of data. We show pictures, we don't. So the whole idea with GraphQL is to avoid underfetching and avoid overfetching right. because you specify. Oh, and it makes sense. It's so I will say, as a consumer on this application, we're now hitting GitHub's GraphQL API, which is spectacular and uh, nicely documented, and you can poke at it and introspect it really well. It worked extremely well for our use case. We were able to batch together a list of discussions and say, give us the status for all of these. And we were able to say exactly the data that we wanted. Granted, we have a server-side application, so the latency and sort of the number of requests were less important, but not, not important in our case. But there was a, a really nice aspect to being able to form the request, get back data in exactly that shape, get back exactly the data we wanted and no more. And as a consumer, GraphQL was spectacular. I have great fears about what it would mean to be an implementer of a GraphQL API <laughs> to say, I have a database. You can ask for anything. Yeah. Right. Well, that's what it is, right? It's effectively giving you database access, but not to the extent that actually just giving you a SQL user would be. Although you could do similar things, actually, just by giving a, like, a, a SQL user with very limited permissions. There are actually a handful of projects that essentially do that. So there's PostgreSQL, which is a project that you pointed at a Postgres database. It infers from the structure of your database, the user's table, the user has many projects, projects have many actions, et cetera. It actually reflects out a GraphQL API just from the Postgres instance that you're pointing at. So it is possible to do that, but decidedly that is not the goal of GraphQL. And I do feel the need to defend its honor in this moment where... <laughs> no, but that's what I mean, right? Is that most of the time you don't actually want to give somebody access to your... No, certainly not. And I can guarantee you that Facebook is not doing that. And the fact... I'm really intrigued by the fact that Facebook is able to make this work because they have 
such nuanced permissions and access control that they need to manage. And the fact that they're able to do that through this semi-ad hoc query language makes me think it's possible. Granted, they have uh, you know pretty sizable engineering budget, but <laughs> yeah. the fact that they can do it and that it seems to be maintainable and reasonable for them, all of those thousand clients are still pointing up the same single GraphQL endpoint and they're all being served by it and all being served well, performantly and maintainably and without errors and right. without accidentally leaking information that they're not supposed to. Uh, that to me is incredibly impressive. Uh, so I'm super intrigued by it as a technology and using it on this project was a lot of fun. I would be scared to make one though. Yeah, that's that, that's my almost my first thought once I get past the like, oh, that sounds cool to use is the like, Oh, I don't. I don't know how I would go about implementing that, and like, what's what are the security constraints of that, and how do you? I mean, make isn't, sure... isn't the point that you don't have to though? Aren't there like GraphQL server implementations that you can just give it out of the box and have a declarative API that you say this is the data I want to give access to, assuming you don't have complex constraints? Yeah, you're almost never just giving access to it. To true, right? Data. If you're doing that, you can. Right. Yeah, you're right. If you're doing that, you could just give them a, a an actual user with access to the right tables on your database. Right. <laughs> I mean, if like the Facebook clients, they're not privileged clients. You know, a user could right. use that user agent, make the request, so it has to be secure. Right. So, and same thing on the GitHub side; they can't be leaking information. So, the fact that those two organizations have both adopted this technology and used it apparently to great success, it feels sort of similar to React, and particularly React Native. When those came out, I was like, "Huh, that seems insane." But you are interesting organizations, and for you to be using this, I'm going to take a second and a third look. So, I'm on to my second look at GraphQL now, and uh, the next thing would be to try actually implementing a GraphQL API and see if that's uh, crazy making or nice. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing I would do if like, I were making a thing that, if I were making an API for a limited number of clients or an API for a client which I control. Like, right. Yep. It just doesn't seem, I mean, I don't know. I've never implemented one. Maybe it's a lot easier than I'm thinking it is. But it doesn't seem worth like going off the beaten path to be like, I've heard really cool things about GraphQL, so I'm going to invest time in uh, making a GraphQL API here. But it does seem like the Facebooks and the GitHubs, or like if you are making a general purpose API, like that maybe that will be better because you don't have to anticipate the needs of your constituents so much. Yeah, the many right. clients thing I think is probably one of the most useful heuristics in whether or not GraphQL makes sense. Because even if you have a really complicated page, like you have a single iOS app that you need to have an API for, and it has a really complex dashboard that's showing a lot of nuanced and different data, you can make an, a REST API endpoint that serves exactly that data in exactly the shape you need. The problem right. comes when you have many clients with nuanced data needs that are different. And in that case, GraphQL seems like it could be a great solution. So. Although I do think it's funny because you, you said a couple of times, like, and they do all of this and they haven't leaked any, any data that they shouldn't be, like, very authoritatively. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like one of those things that the internet would explode about. And that they would take extremely seriously. Like, they're not, I mean, maybe I have too much faith in these organizations. <laughs> Both bounties but. are a thing, and they don't usually cause the internet to explode. <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw the most recent release of mRuby, um, but it's it's considered, I mean, not that, not that Shopify is anywhere near the size of Facebook, but, like, one of the core contributors called it the $500,000 release because uh, it m includes a ton of bug bounties that Shopify apparently paid a half a million U.S. dollars in. Be because our use of mRuby proved that mRuby was incredibly insecure. So what is Shopify using mRuby for? 
Basically, we give, as part of, like, our checkout scripting thing, we just give you the ability to write, like, your own Ruby code to do whatever you want with regards to discounts or, like, custom checkout uh, things. Oh, yeah. That just strikes me immediately as, like, <laughs> I'm sure there's some bugs there. Right. No, exactly. And that also apparently struck our team that works on that uh, as that. So we opened a bug bounty, and then once it... Because MRuby is supposed to be sandboxed, right? It's supposed to be embedded and sufficiently secure and then apparently the bugs came in and very quickly we had to switch to os level sandboxing (laughs) and reduce the bug bounties to one tenth the amount oh no fun but also it accomplished its task then right it did very expensive it got a lot more secure but mruby is a lot more secure now apparently it's just like and then also you know you have like a i don't know if you guys saw there was a blog post like three days ago i think called curl is c yep it showed up on the Rust subreddit because it mentioned Rust light the fires of Gondor. Uh, <laughs> but, the, you know, the, one of the things that just came out in, that was in that blog post was writing in a memory-safe language wouldn't help libcurl because our bugs are almost always uh, logical bugs, not memory-safety-related bugs. And then literally the next day, the disclosure was actually months prior, but it just happened to be the Mac patch came out the very next day for a remote code execution vulnerability and libcurl due to a buffer overflow. Yeah, the timing was uh, kind of spectacular on that. Well, it's just also like it doesn't matter. It's not about the quantity of bugs. It's about the fact that when you have a memory safety vulnerability, it's a remote code execution bug or a you can leak you know arbitrary data on the system ram the heart bleeds as it were right it, it's like <laughs> yeah. the severity is a little different yeah i mean that article was actually really interesting because it it plays at the sort of complex and political and multifaceted reasons that you have to consider for any big decision like that and the same sort of conversations happen constantly with clients and which technology should we use should we rewrite should we not uh, and I think actually the developer of Curl did a great job in that of explaining his reasoning, I think of giving pretty sound reasons. Yes. But at the end of the day, it would probably be better if it were in a memory safe language. I mean, I also agree, like, especially in a, in a consulting world, when a client asks, right, should we rewrite? Should we not? You should not. <laughs> Almost always. Although I'm on a rewrite right now and it was great. <laughs> it's the first and only time that I have experienced a rewrite that I think was uh, beneficial and the correct decision. But, like, I definitely agree that maybe, maybe you know, libcurl should not go for a rewrite. Libcurl should continue to exist as libcurl. Maybe there should be a libcurl 2 mm. that is written in something else that does not necessarily aim for bug-for-bug bug compatibility. Bug-for-bug <laughs> bug compatibility. I love that expression. Yeah. That's a Microsoft thing, I think, right? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I think, that's an, I think that's an IE thing. That sounds, yeah. Anyway. You know, it, like, we were talking about a lot about how nice it is to have the compiler have your back earlier. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I've been working on a lot lately is we're porting crates.io, which is the Rust version of RubyGems.org, over to use Diesel. Uh, and, like, I'm finding all the gaps in our test suite. In Diesel's test suite? No, in, in crates.io's crates. test okay. suite. Because, like, I'm porting things over, and inevitably I port something slightly wrong mm. or miss something and introduce some new bug. Not a type safety bug, but just a purely logical bug. Yep. Like, the query does something slightly different. Part of that's actually just coming from the fact that the queries were not checked to begin with, and now they are. Mm -hmm. And, like, the schema turned out to be incorrect in various ways. But some of them is also just like, oh, whoops, yeah, we were applying this function to to this value before it got compared before, and now I'm not doing that. Mm -hmm. Rewrites are crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, all all of this to say, though, like, the original point I was just trying to make was, like, 
security vulnerabilities, they exist. And they, a lot of times they're a lot more quiet than you'd expect. And I, I just chuckled a little bit internally because you were just very authoritative. I like, was, yes. And they've not leaked any data. And I'm like, ah, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to bet they've probably leaked some data and it just didn't get to the press. I want to listen to the playback because I don't feel like I would say something like that. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's decidedly possible. And that is in no way my intention. I think they've been very purposeful with how they brought it out. And I think... Like there are always going to be security vulnerabilities and things, but it's a question of does it ever make it out there into the wild and get exploited? How quickly are they responding to it? And is it a better system for what they're doing? Because if you have thousands of different endpoints to serve all your clients, that's actually a much bigger surface area for the bugs. So in their case, I can actually see an argument for it being a more securable interface. Well, I'm not trying to argue against it at all. Yeah. Uh, but we'll see. I certainly don't know that they've had no security issues. That I cannot speak to. If we know anybody who works at Facebook or GitHub who knows of security issues around the GraphQL endpoint, let us know. Disclosed don't, or don't undisclosed? No, we, we, we don't, we don't want to no. know this. Nope, no, I don't. don't. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless you want to come on the show and talk about them. That's sure. Come on yeah, true. How many people are using this thing? Uh, we got a couple hundred at this point. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Do you have a record of like what the first actual reported closure yeah, from like a updated at timestamp sort of thing or in my email because it was an email that was sent to me and I said, yay. It was actually <laughs> super exciting because the nature of this app is sort of a set it and forget it. Right. That's the whole purpose of it is you just throw a URL at it and it's like, all right, I got you. And then a few weeks to months later, it says, hey, by the way, that thing you were interested in has now changed in the world. And so I remember getting the first email and I was like, oh, oh my God, it worked. Oh, and now this thing is closed and I'm really excited to go take a look. Does it have a JSON API? It does not. It has no API, although it might oh. in the near future for reasons of enhancements, but I won't get too far into that and commit to That'd things. be cool to add like a, a browser plugin that adds a button to the actual GitHub UI that makes an Ajax request to your thing. That would be very cool, Sean. <laughs> that would be very cool. It's almost as if some people are considering such a thing. It's almost <laughs> as if. we got to see. If it, uh, if it picks up, that is the next uh, area of development. That's very much in the plans. But uh, now you've leaked all our secrets. Our whole roadmap's out there, Sean. <laughs> Sorry. Could no, this be, so I was just thinking, like, as you were describing, like, the nature is, like, you give it this thing once, and then you basically wait <laughs> an yep. indeterminate amount of time to see if it worked. This is kind of a general problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do you think you could build a generalized solution to such a thing? Like... There's a thing on the internet. I want to monitor its status. Tell me when the status reaches X. It depends on how knowable reaching X is. So uh, someone actually saw the app and their first reaction was, hey, this looks pretty cool. Although I think tell me when it's released or tell me when it's in a release.com would be cooler, which is totally true. Uh, That is actually what matters. So for smaller things like Vim plugins and whatnot, I'm pulling from master. It doesn't matter. The minute it's merged, I'm happy. For larger projects like Rails or anything that's that's of a size that does releases, the release is what matters. I can't really use it until we get to that. I mean, I can if I'm just going to point at master. But in general, like with Rails as the example, I do not want to be pointing at master on Rails. Uh, no, any you production don't. app that I have, I want that to be on a nice, solid x.x.x type version. So or a branch that has stable in the name. Yeah, but, I'm going to say those are stable. They're stable in the name. That's how you know. <laughs> but it's a lot harder to know that. So that's I'm starting to think about it. And unfortunately, now I've nerd sniped my or that person on the internet nerd sniped me. And I'm thinking about this very hard. But it's a much more difficult problem to solve than like this other thing of has it closed is just right. I can ask an API. Granted, I thought it would be easier to ask an API, but it is possible to ask an API about that. 
if there are other things that are amenable to that, I would love to do that. That seems like uh, I love when I can use technology to solve little nuisances in my life. And Yeah, like the release thing, I'm just trying to think of like that would almost make more sense to do on a commit rather than on a on an issue. Although it's perhaps easier to do on an issue to be like, tell me when this issue is solved and the solution is in a release. In theory, that commit, I can take that SHA, hold on to it, watch the releases. When yep. a release that has a compare that contains that commit, then we're good. But if people press the button, then it's a different commit. So I can't use that SHA. So I have to figure out how to dereference right. to the one that got created by the button. Right. And it the problem gets bigger. That's why I said, like, if you could just do it on it, if you were just browsing GitHub and you were like, this commit, tell me when it's in a release, that would work. Oh. Right? Yeah. Instead of working on a pull request or an issue. But I was thinking even like non-super nerdy and be like, tell me when this is available at this URL, right? Like, tell me when the price drops on this thing to $24. Now you want me to be scraping the web? Uh, no, I think you should keep an eye out for like, so pricing is probably not great because there's not a lot of great APIs to give you like, but like things that make an API available that track a status. Yeah. Because that is like, now you're just talking about adapters. Yep. Because you have a thing that already runs background jobs to check things and emails people. And then you'd be talking about adapters yeah. at that point. I mean, I again, I love the idea of I get to tell a computer to do something and then I get to forget about it. I get to right. offload some amount of mental effort <laughs> to a computer. That's that's the whole game, right? So right. Uh, yeah, uh, I will definitely keep an eye out for that. Slash, you're just trying to get me to build something, aren't you, Derek? No, I don't have any, I don't have any actual uh, use case in mind right now, but I'll have to think about that. I'm sure you will soon. I checked for tellmewhen.com, but it's uh, it's already taken. <laughs> a little more general. Mm. What about tellme.when? Oh. <laughs> is, is dot, is when, dot a when a thing? <laughs> probably. I don't know. We could probably make it one for a few hundred thousand dollars. Or oh, yeah. <laughs> it's only like 250 grand, no biggie. Yeah. Money well spent. Walking around money. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, I mean, hey, for talking 250,000 Canadian, that's like six US dollars at this point. <laughs> Uh, anything else? I want to talk about Vim stuff, but I don't think we have time to talk about Vim stuff. Probably not Vim stuff. Um, I have some thoughts about JavaScript, but maybe that's for another time. <laughs> we'll have you back on to talk yeah, about JavaScript. That's, a, that's another episode. We've been doing a heroic job of keeping JavaScript out of our client app, and it's been a really entertaining and interesting process. But that that feels like it deserves a broader conversation. So. I would love to have that conversation. We'll have to have yeah, you on again. Really you guys know my number. Have me back anytime. I will talk about stuff for oof, far too long. <laughs> All right. So thanks very much for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having uh, me. If anything Chris talked about here piqued your interest, you can check out Tell Me When It Closes at tellmewhenitcloses.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, and uh, we'll put a link to Chris's GitHub profile in the show notes, and you can see all the other tools that Chris has built me over the years. Uh, <laughs> 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 show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 106. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>